Well, good morning. It's so great to see you all here. And I have the privilege, as Doug mentioned, to cover the sixth of the seven I am statements. And uh, it, it's a wonderful, wonderful passage. And it talks all about giving comfort and hope uh, to troubled hearts. And I'm thinking, boy, that is exactly what this, what this world a comfort to a troubled heart. I, I got up this morning and Cheryl, Cheryl said, well, Jeff, because this is the last sort of normal message uh, that I'm going to give. And Cheryl said, well, how are you feeling? And I said, I'm so sad. You know, it's, it's, it's like saying goodbye to a, a kid going off to school. You know, you're excited for him. You're happy for him. But it's sort of sad to see him go. So those bittersweet things all rolled up in, into one. And so when I was preparing this message, I thought, wow, there is so much going on in the world. There is so much stress and, and violence and, and flooding and tornadoes and all this stuff. I, I decided to call the Cedar Rapids hotline just to see, have you had an increase in calls so, so far this year? And they said there has been a 37% increase just uh, since the beginning of this year. And uh, so I did some more study into the Center for Disease Control. They said suicide rate has been up 34%, up to about 47,000. Uh, this is the highest it's been in over 50 years. And they said the most disturbing thing about this is that uh, for, for young people, 37, or I'm sorry, 35 years and younger, uh, it's the second leading cause of death now. And so one writer described a stress that people are going through and feeling. They, they said, it's a debilitating, defeating, deepening gloom, trudging wearily through the grocery store, unable to make a simple choice or to count out the correct change, surveying an unbelievably messy house, piles of laundry, work undone, not even able to lift a finger, doubting that God cares, doubting in my prayers, doubting he's even there, sitting staring wild-eyed into space, desperately wanting out of the human race. I don't know if you've had a year like that. Uh, we certainly had a year as a number of years ago in the early 80s. It was without a doubt the most difficult year we ever experienced. Uh, Cheryl, my wife, um, ended up going into the hospital. Uh, we had a daughter, Rosie, many of you know this, a daughter who almost died of spinal meningitis, bacterial spinal meningitis. She was in intensive care for 13 days. Uh, during all this, my father died of a heart attack. Uh, at, at the time, we had started this church. We had been there for three years, uh, and we saw the church grow to almost 400 people. 365 people had trusted Christ. And all of a sudden now, I'm accused of being a false teacher because I'm teaching on eternal uh, security. So my wife and I were then shunned by people in the church until we would repent, repent of this. During all that, this is in one year. During all that, our third child, Jeffrey Paul, was born. Uh, I had to resign from the church, but I had the promise of a continued salary uh, until we got placed into another church. Well, we never got another, another check. Uh, during that, there was a stock market crash in 1981. There was a stock market crash. We were living in Texas. The oil economy just fell apart. We had our house on the market for 79000 We ended up selling it for 30000 We had to move to a new city, new church, started a new church, uh, new, new family, uh, and I thought... God, how are we gonna? How are we gonna get through this? And uh, so I, I defined it as stress. Uh, others tried to tell me that I was suffering from depression, but at the time, I really resisted the term uh, depression because, well, frankly, I was a Christian. <laughs> uh, not only was I a Christian, 
I was a, I was a pastor. And Christians who believe in God and read their Bibles don't get depressed. Uh, that was a term reserved for untrusting souls who really depended more on the carnalities of the world. But, but looking back with a, a hopefully a lot more maturity, uh, the word depressed would have been very appropriate, uh, if not an understatement. But to say the least, uh, what I was suffering from was something that the Bible would call, and we're going to see this phrase in this passage today, I was really suffering from a troubled heart. And uh, so I want to help share the story uh, this morning, uh, John 14, 1 to 6. I think it's a story that offers a lot of comfort, a lot of hope for troubled hearts. I just want to say it up front. I really do think I would have benefited a lot from some professional help, from counseling. But at my point in my spiritual journey, I, I just was not open to that at all. I resisted it. Uh, but at the same time, I would have encouraged a diabetic to go and get insulin for di diabetes. And, and yet I, I really resisted it. And, um, and yet at the time, God in his grace and mercy uh, helped us. He helped us through his spirit. He helped us through his word. He helped. We started this church with just, actually it was just one family, a couple different members in the family. We started this church and for three years we were loved like we had never been loved before. And so for, for all of those things, uh, God helped us through. And yet what I would like to do is to boldly declare that Jesus does offer comfort and hope for troubled hearts. And he, his claim really in this passage that he is the way and the truth and the life uh, really helps us, I think, uh, navigate these, these issues. Because troubled hearts, uh, even if we're very committed Christians, I think we can clearly go through times when things are very tough. So I think the question that we really need to a ask and have answered from this text is, Lord, how, how are we going to handle being in a world where there's a lot of heart trouble? Why does God even allow us to stay in a world that is filled with so much uh, distress? Well, Peter tells us, Peter, Peter tells us that we're in a world and, and God, God loves us so much. He loves the world so much that he, to, he is waiting uh, to give people a chance to come to the point where they put their faith and trust in us. As, as Doug said earlier, you know, we gather, we grow, and then we go. He's waiting for us to go to share this wonderful news uh, to people who are really going through a lot of heart, heart trouble because we as believers are going to find a way uh, to navigate, navigate this. And so what we see in life is that whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you're going to go through tough times. I and mean, just listen to the news. I mean, just in the last few weeks, you've seen uh, mosques bombed. You've seen Muslims die. You've seen Christians die through terrorist attacks. You've seen uh, Jewish people get shot them die. You see tornadoes hit. They hit churches. They hit homes. They hit believers. They hit unbelievers. Uh, you see Christian athletes go 0 for 4 uh, in a game. And they even have John 3.16 written on their shoe. And, and you, see, you see others who aren't Christians. You know, they can hit home runs. They can go 0 for 4. <coughs> so uh, there can be a lot of really good theological answers for these things. 
but a lot of times that doesn't help my heart when my heart is severely troubled. So I believe that God has brought many of you here today. Last week, we had the wonderful privilege to celebrate the fact that not only Jesus died, Good Friday, but he is risen from the grave. But even though he's risen from the grave, you and I will go through some tumultuous seas and uh, probably there's somebody here right now going through a very, very difficult time. So what I'd like for you to do is to open your Bible to John chapter 14. And I just want you to listen to this passage, another one that Jesus claims what he claims to be. But it starts with, with a context. And if you don't understand the context of verse 6, you'll never really appreciate the depth of verse 6. And it starts in verse 1 by saying this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust or believe also in me. It's the word terazzo. And it's a word that could be translated trouble here. So I, I did a pretty thorough word analysis on this word. And so I want to give you the breadth of the definitions for this one Greek word. Also through Moulton and Milligan, which would give you the secular usage of, of this word. Then see if you can identify with this kind of heart trouble. It means to agitate something, to move its parts back and to, to cause one internal commotion, to take away your calmness of mind, to disturb one's equanimity, to disquiet, to make restless, to stir up, to strike one's spirit with fear and with dread, to render anxious, distressed, to perplex one's mind to the point where they are uh, listening to suggestions of scruples and doubts. Again, in Milton Milligan, uh, uh, the way this word is used a number of times, because again, we're talking to a lot of people who are seafaring people, it is used of the surging and heaving waters of a tumultuous sea. It talks about the agitations of the soul. And I know you've been there. I know you've experienced it. There has been a time in your life, maybe now, where there is a storm that's raging in your heart. And you say, why? Why were the disciples, why would he look at them and, and say that this is what's going on in your life? I mean, they have walked with Jesus now for three years. If there is anybody on earth that, that should be confident and steadfast and secure, uh, and free of anxiety and worry. It should be the disciples, but that wasn't the case. And you think, why? Why were the hearts of the disciples so troubled? And I would say, for some of the same reasons, our hearts are troubled and anxious and disturbed. And every single one of these reasons, I can look back to that very difficult year and say, yes, I can identify with those. For example, for the disciples, uh, failure. And just think of failure. I mean, here is Peter. Peter is saying, oh God, Lord, I, I will die for you. And then Jesus says, no, Peter, I mean, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me. Not only are you going to deny me, you're going to deny me three times. 
And you look at one of the other disciples, Judas, and here Judas is, betrays him. So we we fail. We have failure, and it, it causes the agitations of the soul when we fail. Even with extremely good intentions, we might fail in our marriage or fail with our kids. We fail at school. We fail at a job. Secondly, there was disappointment. The, the disciples had a dream. You might want to call this midlife crisis. Many of us have disappointments because in our hearts and minds we have these big goals, big plans that we feel that the Lord wants to do in our lives and we don't get there. And so there's disappointment. So the disciples here just two weeks earlier, you remember last Sunday was what? Easter. And the Sunday before that, we would call that Palm what? Palm Sunday, yeah. So a week before before he went to the... To the um, cross and his death and resurrection week before that remember they marched into Jerusalem this was the official presentation of Jesus as the Messiah to Israel in Jerusalem so he's marching in you know on the colt the foal of a donkey fulfilling prophecy going in to present himself as king and the, and the disciples were with him they know exactly in their minds what's going to happen so they're arguing about who's going to sit on the left who's going to sit on the right who's going to be greatest in the kingdom because he's going in there to set up the kingdom and all of a sudden you see Jesus heart agitated he's weeping they're rejecting him and now Jesus to the disciples are saying we're going to go somewhere else. We're, we're, I, I'm, going to go, I'm going to go somewhere else, and where I'm going, you can't go. So think about the dreams that the disciples had. You know, we're going to reign with Jesus now. Jesus is leaving us. We can't go. What, what does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus is not going to be the king? Does, does that mean we have failed so miserably that he's going to be the king, but he's picking somebody else? To sit on his left and sit on his right so their their dreams are being shattered at this point and we have those same kind of disappointments we might think well am i too young for this am i too old for this and we go through those disappointments in life which can cause this agitation what about confusion you know they the disciples had no idea what was going to happen next they thought they had it all planned out. They were walking with Jesus for three years. So they were secure. They were safe. They were stable. They were absolutely confident. And now the rug of their lives is just being ripped out from underneath them. They have no idea what's going to happen. Total confusion. What's going to give them security in the midst of a life that is filled with troubled seas now. And then there's fear. They don't know the next step, but there was a fear of the Roman Empire. Now, that wasn't the greatest place to not worship Caesar. There's a fear of the Roman Empire. There's a fear of the Jewish plot to kill Jesus. Would that plot also include them? You know, in my experience, serving as a pastor, whether it be the first or the last, I've gone through all of those. Failure, multiple times, you know, where you've, where you've messed up. Failure, confusion by situations, disappointments, 
fear, you know, all of those things I've been through. We've all felt weather-worn. We've all felt blasted by the storms, pounded by the surf of life. We have felt like circumstances just puncturing our fragile dikes, threatening to swamp our boats and engulf our lives with pain, with confusion. And Jesus saw that in the eyes of his disciples. And so he looks them in the eyes and he says to them, do not. Now, before I go on and tell you sort of the, the solution to this, I want to first ask you, and I want you to come to grips with, how do you, what's your strategy for dealing with heart trouble? Right now, what's your strategy for dealing with it? Because you have gone through it, you are going through it. What's your strategy? For some of you, it's escape. I'll just run. Do something different. So that's your strategy. I'll just run from it. For some, it's ignore it. I'm not going to pay any attention to it. I'm going to ignore it. Or I'll just stuff it. I'll deny it. Or if you're like me, uh, I'll just strategize my way through it. I'll just set new goals, put together new plans, tough our way through it. Or maybe hide. Maybe I'll just hide. And there are lots of ways to hide. You could hide through alcohol. You could hide through promiscuity. You could hide through pornography. You can hide from overwork. You could hide from by materialism or things, trips. You can hide through social media, just delve into Facebook. Um, or another way you can deal with it is just give everybody else around you heartburn. I mean, just anger, just lash out. That's how you can deal with it. So Jesus says, I've, I've got a whole different strategy for you. And he gives us John 14. I mean, the whole chapter is absolutely incredible. Read the whole thing. It's wonderful. It, it's his last will and testament. It's awesome. Uh, and John 14 is sort of the Psalm 23 of the New Testament. You, you know, what's amazing, because they've got troubled hearts, they, they're, they're really going through anxieties and tribulations in their hearts. And so for a lot of us, when we experience great tribulation, is when somebody that's really close to us that we love so much, they die, sometimes die unexpectedly. And so is it any wonder that in most funerals, what are the two passages a pastor will read? I'll guarantee you 90% of the funerals, you've heard 23rd Psalm and John 14, verse, verse 1 and 2. You've heard those because they are this incredible passage to give comfort and strength to troubled hearts. Now, notice this. Jesus does not condemn the disciples for having troubled hearts. So just a word of warning, please don't scold somebody for struggling. Go to them and tell them, like I probably would have years ago, that, well, you just need to buck up and trust God. Have a little faith. That is not the proper way of handling it. Uh, so before you preach to somebody about having a troubled heart, what you should do is flip back a chapter to chapter 13 and read where it says Jesus had a troubled heart. 
And maybe if it was okay for Jesus to have a troubled soul, it might be okay for there to be times in my life as well. So in John 13, 21, Jesus was troubled in spirit. When he found out the fact that somebody was going to betray him, it says that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And Jesus knew exactly how the whole thing would pan out. We don't. So Jesus isn't condemning having a troubled heart. It's not a sin to have a troubled heart. But it is foolish not to follow his instruction for troubled hearts, as outlined in John 14. So he's commanding us to look to him. So John 14 is an awesome passage. It's his last will and testament, so to speak. And the first thing he just wants us to do is just trust me. Believe me. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe, trust in God. Believe, trust also in me. So Jesus moves himself onto a plane of equality with the Father, speaking as a man, but also speaking as God. Literally, he says, keep on trusting me. You believe in God, he's saying to them. Look, you believe in God even when you don't see him. So believe also in me even when I'm not going to be visible. I mean, he's looking ahead. He's gonna, he knows he's going to be crucified, resurrected. He'll descend uh, to heaven. So he's not going to be visible, so he's going to send the Holy Spirit as a comforter, as a helper. We'll read about that a little bit later in John 14 as well but he's referring to his upcoming death. When I'm not visible, keep on trusting me. So we have all these passages in the New Testament. For example, Matthew 28, it ends, Lo, I am with you always. Trust me, I'm with you. I'm always going to be with you. Hebrews 13, 5, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. So this is his first way that he attempts to comfort his disciples. He's there no matter what you go through. He's present at all times to all people. That's the benefit of the resurrection. He can be with all of us and give us that same assurance. Again, I I love the fact that it sounds like a last will and testament because when you read all of John 14, and you can do it on your own at, at a different time, but he'll say, I am or I will, and then he gives the results of how that will impact you. He does that 27 times in one chapter. I am, I will, this is how you benefit. I am, I will, this is how you benefit. So it's a last will and testament. We, ha- we have a last will and testament. We've got one. Our family has one. But, but the problem with my last will and testament is uh, I've got to die for that to come in effect. For Jesus, he's got to live for that to come into effect. That's the beauty of Easter. That's, again, what we talked about. Pastor Doug talked about that uh, last week. So the strategy then, when we have a troubled heart, instead of Instead of trying to escape it, instead of trying to hide from it, instead of trying to ignore it, instead of trying to deny it or stuff it, give a troubled heart, maybe, to everybody else around you, heartburn. Uh, Just keep trusting me because I'm always going to be with you. I'm going to give a helper to you. I'm going to give a comforter to you who will always be there. Secondly, he says, look, I love you so much. And we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love me. 
long for me because I'm going to come back and take you to be with me. This is a verse we hear in a lot of funerals. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back. I'm going to take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. So when you're thinking or or when your heart is troubled, he's saying, look, just think about home. He's saying, you've got, in the middle of struggles, you've got to have an eternal perspective on life. Right next to this, you could jot down Psalm 73, the Psalm of Asaph. This is a psalm where, where the psalmist is going, why do the stinking unbelievers have it so good? Why, why does it seem like they always prosper? And here I'm trying to do everything right and everything wrong comes my way. And the whole psalm is that way. Why do the ungodly prosper? Until, toward the end of the psalm, I got into the sanctuary. And when I got into the sanctuary, I saw their end. In other words, until I developed an eternal perspective. That's what Jesus is saying. Love me. Long for me. Long for me. I'm going to come back and take you to be with me. This, This is home. This is home. This is like if you, if you like the uh, Marvel's series, uh, this would be the conclusion. This would be the end game. The end game is, and you're going to find out, I didn't see it, but if you're going to find out that it requires sacrifice. It requires loving sacrifice to get to the end game. Oh, well, that's exactly what it is. He says, when your heart is troubled, think about home. Get that eternal perspective. That's the real home. It's not where you live. It's where you will be, the promise of the future. You're going to find out about it. It's a place where you're welcome. In my father's house, there, look, there are many rooms here in his father's house. In Revelation, you're going to find out. He even gives the dimensions of it, 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. So an architect who is an engineer uh, calculated it out, and he said, well, that's like 2.25 million square miles. Boy, in 2.25 million square miles, if, you were to, if that were to be heaven at the density of London, it would be able to fit 100,000 million people. That's 30 times the number of people who are on the globe today. That's a lot of folks. Now, I personally hope that he gives us a little more elbow room. Uh, but uh, can you imagine all those people worshiping God at once? Look, in my father's house. You're going to be welcome there. It's a place where you're comfortable. Prepare a place for you. He's going to prepare a place just for you. I don't know exactly what that means, but I I think it perhaps has something to do with his purpose for your life and all of eternity. It's going to be exactly right for you, and it's a place where you're going to be loved. I'm going to come back and take you to be with me. I want you to be with me. That's the definition of home. The definition of home is you to be with me. That's ultimately where all of history is headed. That's the final headline for us as believers. Home, where you will be with me. Um, Now, folks, that is help for a troubled heart. In the meantime, he gives us a helper. He gives us a comforter to be with us, and he'll never, ever lead us. 
And so then Jesus concludes this section by this strange sentence. And you know the way to where I am going. Hmm. He's saying it's a big place. It's a comfortable place. It's designed just for you. I love you. Uh, you're going to be taken there to me. And you know the way where I'm going. It's sort of like, let's say there's somebody you would love to meet and spend time with. Could be the Pope, could be the president, could be some, some famous actor or actress or a musician or, or athlete or whatever. And so this famous person writes you a gold invitation. This gold invitation is to have dinner together. We're going to have fruit appetizers in Hawaii, and then we're going to fly to, to Maine for lobster, then we're going to fly to Nome for baked Alaska. It's going to be so awesome. See you there. And you go, see me where? Where am I supposed to go? What, what, what's the deal? No, the disciples just don't know. So this is what leads us into that very, very famous I am, uh, which is follow me because I am the way and the truth and the life. So it starts with this question, verse 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Now here, Thomas wasn't doubting here. Thomas was just being very honest. It's just like if you were taking a class at the university and, and all of a sudden the teacher says, well, don't forget our test and you know where the test is going to be. And you're going, what test? Where? Where am I supposed to take that test? Well, that's, that's where the disciples are. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so, so how can we know the way? And so Jesus honest question. He rewards that with one of the most powerful verses in the entire New Testament. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is saying that the way, the truth, the life is not found in a principle. It's not found in a plan. It's not found in a lifestyle. It's not found in a list of rules. It's not found in an inner security or a philosophy or a feeling or a religion. It's found in a person. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way to heaven, the way to life, the way to God. He's not just a teacher of the way, He's not just a teller of truth. He's not just an example of how to live or life. He is the way, the truth, and life. So if I want help for my troubled heart, then I've got to find it in Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. If you look back through history, there are a lot of people who claim to know the way. You know, Buddha himself called himself the way shower. I will show you the way, but only Jesus says, no, I am. I'm not a way shower. I am the way. There are a lot of people who think that they have a unique hold on the truth. Muhammad claimed to be a teacher of the truth, but Jesus says, I am truth. 
And both Buddha and Muhammad both claim to be able to lead one to life, but Jesus says, look, only Jesus is the life. He's not saying, I will show you the way to life. He says, I am life. Now, most of you were probably, like me, brought up to be pretty open-minded. Uh, my guess is you were also brought up to value other people's opinions. But my first exposure to this verse made me think that is pretty narrow-minded. To me, that looks like exclusivity, not inclusivity. Jesus is claiming to be the only way, not just a way shower. He's claiming to be the truth, not just the ability to tell people the truth. And he's claiming to be life itself, not just, hey, let me give you a good example of how to live. So when you come to me, you're meeting God. You have found ultimate reality and truth. And when you come to me, you then and there possess life itself. Many. One of the first, well, no, not one of the first, but in my early years, uh, my sister felt exactly that. My wife's sitting back here, and I remember her being in our little apartment, and she just said, you know, Jeffrey, you can't say that, that Jesus is the only way. That is so narrow. I didn't know how to respond. I, I think what I would say now is, Julie, truth is very narrow. But let me give you an illustration. And maybe this might help you. So I'm a dad. Got one of my sons sitting back here. We've got six kids. We've got 22, almost 23 grandkids. And I love them so much. I would absolutely give my life for them in an instant. In an instant. I love them. I care for them. I want absolutely what is best for them. I want them to be protected. I want them to be safe. I want them to have access to me at any time, day or night. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to give each one of my six kids an iPhone. Spending the money on the best. An iPhone. No, I, whatever. <laughs> I'm going to give him an iPhone. And I'm going to tell I'm going to say, look, I love you. I care for you. I want you to have access to me anytime, day or night. So here's the number to get me. And so I give him the numbers to my iPhone. You just pick it up, call me. You will have direct access to me immediately. The caveat is, those numbers need to be those exact numbers in the exact sequence. It's audacious to think that you could pick up that phone and just dial whatever number you want to dial and think you could get to me. It has to be those exact numbers in that exact sequence. No deviation allowed. <laughs> so you might say, Jeff, 
Isn't that pretty narrow-minded that you could just dial any number, that, that it has to be exact numbers with the exact sequence to call somebody? Isn't that narrow-minded? Isn't that a little exclusive? Why can't your kids just call any number to get to you? I would say that's not narrow-minded. That's not exclusive whatsoever. That is merely truth that is based on a profound love that I have for my kids, that I would give them those exact numbers in an exact sequence so they can get to me at any time, day, or night. That is being loving based on truth. Some want to believe that when it comes to getting to God, any number will work. Pick up the no number, call it, any sequence. It doesn't require um, the right number. But the, the Bible says the truth is that God loves us so much, he is making it so clear to people that by dialing this number in this sequence, you can absolutely have access to the Father. And through the history of the world, God has gone to every effort imaginable to get that number to his creation. Uh, Doug shared, you know, what do we do as a church? We gather, gather and worship. We grow in discipleship, and then we go. We take that number. We take those numbers in that exact sequence, and we take it to the world that also has heart trouble, that needs to have access to God. And we give that. that that's why Jesus in the Great Commission said, go into all the world. Take that number to everyone in the world. So um, that requires on the individual side, so we're not forcing it on anybody, it requires that a person actually want that number. They're actually seeking for that number. Jeremiah 29 says, you'll seek me, you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. Now I'll tell you, I was confronted with this verse almost 48 years ago, the John 14 verse 6. So I want to just tell you a little story. I'm going to close it with a story. 48 years ago, I was sitting in the chemistry library at LSU. It was after Thanksgiving vacation. It was, you know, so December hits and everybody's studying like crazy because finals are right around the corner. And so I'm sitting in the chemistry library. It's my major. And um, there was a girl seated down at the end of the table. And she was a member of the band, Debbie Neal Holloman. And uh, she said, hey, Jeff, have you ever, have you ever read this little pamphlet? It was the four spiritual laws. She said, have you ever read this little pamphlet? I said, no. She said, here, take a look at it. She had her right hand on the, I was sitting on that side, she was sitting over here. She put her right hand on the pamphlet and she slid it down the table to me and I, I picked it up and uh, I began to read it. So let me introduce it to you. So here it is. And by the way, if there are those of you who have never read a copy of this or if you don't have a copy of this, we've got a number of them they're sort of disappearing after the first service. But if you already have one, don't take one. If you know what it is, don't take one. But for those of you who haven't seen one, we'd love for you to have it. Just, just because it means so much to me. This is how my spiritual life began. 
send my last normal message with this as well. So anyway, have you heard of the four spiritual laws? So I opened it up. I was sitting there on that table, and I opened it up to law one. Just as there are physical laws that govern the physical universe, there are spiritual laws that govern your relationship with God. And I read law one, that God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. And I thought, that sounds pretty cool. God loves me and has a great plan for my life. And I read, I was familiar with John 3, 16. God so loved the whole cosmos. He loved all of his creation, but he wants you to be his child, not just his creation. He wants you to be his child. God loved the world. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but have, hey, life, eternal life, way, truth, life. I want you to have that. So, uh, and, and this is a life that it says in John 10, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And I thought, wow, that really sounds good. So that sounded so good, I flipped the page to law number two, that man is sinful and separated from God. Therefore, he can't know and experience God's love and plan for his life. This sort of lost me right here because when I read it, I did not believe in sin. I just thought, you just do whatever you cotton pick and want to do. And if somebody else has trouble with it, that's their problem, not your problem. So I struggled here a little bit. And then I struggled even more, for all have sinned. So all of us are, I didn't even believe in it, but all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So I wasn't tracking, I wasn't really understanding what he was talking about. And then I got, the bad news sounded even worse <laughs> in Romans 6, 23. And the wages of sin is death, spiritual separation from God. So, you know, I read that, but I saw this holy God separated from sinful man. I knew in my heart of hearts that there were things about my life that just weren't right. So that was my only identification. I cussed way too much. I could barely get a sentence out without including some sort of cuss word. So uh, I, I knew that my life wasn't exactly right. So maybe there was some place Maybe there was something about this. So then I flipped over to the third law, that Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. Through him, you can know and experience God's love and plan for your life. Now, I, my mother had drugged me to church for a number of years. I wasn't a, a believer. You know, me being a believer was as much as going into a garage makes you a car. So, you know, I wasn't a Christian just because I went to church with my mom. Um, and it says that God demonstrated his love toward it. This is just like the end game, right? This is just like Marvel's last movie. He demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So now I'm learning something new about Jesus, that Jesus would go to the cross and die for me. And then Easter, I've been to Easter services, and this is what we covered last week. Christ died for sins, was buried, raised on the third day, according to scriptures. I think, oh yeah, that's Easter. And then, this is the first time I ever was exposed to this verse, the one that we're covering today. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And it hit me about the exclusivity, the narrow-mindedness of this claim. And I wondered about that. You know, instead of being the way, the truth, just a way, a truth, a life. You know, I would have felt a little more comfortable with that. But then I looked at the diagram and I thought, well, I guess that makes sense that God's trying to relate to man and it has to be done through Jesus Christ. 
And then I got to law four, that we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and then we can know and experience God's love and plan for our life. And I read, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. It's by grace, not of yourselves. It's a gift, not as a result of works. And so I'm lost again. There, I'm, I'm lost again. I'm frustrated because I thought there are many ways. There are lots of good, you know, as long as your good works or more than your bad works, you'll be okay. You know, so I was sort of there. And so I got stuck. I'm, I'm stuck. Law four, I'm stuck. And so Debbie down, so I read it. And I said, yeah, that's cool. You know, whatever turns your crank, you know, that's cool. Slid it back. Uh, and she said, hey, Jeff, there are a group of us. What are you doing for Christmas? You know, just a couple weeks away. What are you doing for Christmas? I said, oh, nothing, just hanging around home. Well, how about you want to go to Dallas with us? We're, we've got a group going to a conference in Dallas. And I said, who's going? And she named off, besides herself, eight other girls. So nine girls total, and she's asking me to go. I said, look, I might not be a Christian, but I'm not stupid. Of, <laughs> of course I want to go. <laughs> so we went, I, and I still remember, you know, Debbie driving me in the next, and she walked me through a couple of other verses. One other verse that we're actually covering next week. I'm not going to... Uh, I'm not going to be a spoiler alert. I've already spoiled Endgame. Don't even have to see it now. But, uh, but I don't, I don't want to spoil the seventh I am. But she read that to me. And, man, that was like a dagger in, in my heart. So we went, we, we went to the conference. And then, you know, after the conference, I, I realized that I don't, I've gone to church my whole life, but I really don't know Jesus and when I, we went through Ephesians chapter 1, and I realized that as believers, we're co-resurrected, co-ascended, co-ascended at the right hand of God. I realized I'm not a Christian. And so we sat down, uh, sat down in the hallway of the Marriott Hotel, December 31st, 1971, 11.45 p.m. And I remember coming to the I needed to, right there, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become a child of God, even to those who believe in his name. Right there I realized I needed to put my faith and trust in Jesus, who is the way, who is the truth, and who is the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Again, if you have never read it, if you don't have it, please please uh, honor me by grabbing one on the way out. Well, let me pray uh, for us, and then we're going to close with a beautiful song, Because He Lives. Father, thank you. Thank you that you care about our troubled hearts. Um, you're not here to scold us, but you invite us to trust you let not your hearts be troubled. Keep on trusting me. Love me. Long for me because I'm coming uh, for you. I want to take you to be with me. So, so follow me because I am the way and the truth and the life. If you're here and if you've never taken that step of faith, just as I did some 48 years ago, it says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Or in other words, for as many of you who now know 
the numbers to dial, the sequences to dial them in. I've given you the right to become a child of God if you will just pick up that phone, dial him, open the door of your life, and believe in him. You might, if you've never prayed a prayer like this, this is sort of a prayer that I prayed some 48 years ago, almost 48 years ago. You might just say, Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I open the door of my life. I receive you as my Savior and my Lord. Thank you for forgiving my sins and giving me eternal life. Take control of the throne of my life and make me the kind of person that you want me to be. Amen. Let's all stand together and we'll close with this wonderful hymn.